morning, church. Good morning if you're watching online. Um, Shameless plug before I start. Uh, On the way in, if you pass the group's kiosk, you maybe saw a little red book like this. Um, It's called Practical Christianity. This is the fall series that we're going to push into as a church, looking at Romans 13, 14, and 15. And so we really encourage you. You heard Pastor Serenity say this about how groups had impacted her life. Um, That's not just something we say. Groups really are important. Um, I myself attend a group weekly and find it to be one of the most transformative parts of my spiritual journey. And so we encourage you to stop by either the group's kiosk or the info desk. Grab one of these books. Um, If you're in another group that's going through something different, that's fine. Still grab one of these. This is a great moment to sit down during the week as a family. And as a family, you could walk through some of these questions um, because the home is one of the primary places of discipleship, right? So grab one of these resources. This is meant to be something to come alongside of you in your spiritual journey as we walk through Romans. So highly, highly encourage this. Um, I want to begin with a question today. Have you experienced a season of life that just is is really difficult? Maybe it's one of those seasons where you just feel like things are stacked against you. And if you've walked through a season like that, it can be really difficult to survive, let alone to feel like you're thriving, let alone feeling like you have any sort of like transformative impact or influence in that season because you just feel like, okay, I'm keeping my head down and I'm surviving. There was a man named uh, Mumufuko Ando who was a Taiwanese entrepreneur who moved to Japan in the mid-30s and he started a clothing company that became radically successful. World War II hit and he shifted gears and he began selling things like air raid shelters and uh, supplies that people could take home and have like a survival kit. And again, I mean, just made incredible amounts of money. Well, during World War II, he discovered in his company a, uh, an accounting error. And so he brought it to the attention of the Japanese military police and said, would you help me investigate this accounting error? They proceeded to promptly throw him in a military prison. He was starved and mistreated for 45 days and uh, left there. The only reason he was released from prison was because Japan was defeated in World War II. And when he got out of prison, he discovered that everything he had was gone. Company, gone. Factories, gone. The fortune he had built, gone. He started a second company, a real estate company, and uh, did quite well. And again, it collapsed, lost it all. This man made not one, but two fortunes and lost not one, but two fortunes. And so finally, this man who had been a millionaire, who'd been incredibly successful, finds himself building a shed in his backyard and he sets up in this shed a makeshift uh, food lab. And now he becomes the crazy guy who's like making and baking and cooking things in his backyard and his neighbors are like, who is this guy and what is that weird food? What, What is it we smell? What's happening? And lo and behold, Ando would become the inventor of instant ramen noodles. So if you're a college student who survived on instant ramen noodles, you can thank Momofuku Ando, this Taiwanese inventor who created instant ramen noodles. And it would make him a multi-multi-millionaire by the time he died in 2007. But one journalist, as he reflected on his life, he said, okay, uh, Ando encountered difficulty after difficulty after difficulty. What made the difference? Is it just that he was that good at business? Was it his ability to persevere? And, And this journalist said, as I looked at his story, what became apparent was that he was successful, not because of how good he was, but because of the community of people around him. He said, when he got out of prison, there were friends who said, you want to sleep on my couch? You you can have a place to sleep. Do you need some money to start your makeshift food lab in your shed? I'll loan you money for that. Who does that? 
And time and time again, it was friends, it was family, it was this community of people that he was a part of that came to his assistance, that offered encouragement. And it wasn't individually because he was that great, it's because he had a community of people who rallied to support him. Enter the book of Romans. Uh, the book of Romans is a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome. And, and the church at Rome had encountered difficulty after difficulty after difficulty. Now, it's likely that uh, the, the church in Rome was founded uh, by a group of Jewish people who were at Peter's sermon at uh, Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We know that there's some visitors from Rome there. It's likely that they were converted. And several years later, we have this church in Rome. Now, the church in Rome is a mixture between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And the Jews and the Gentiles often had a, a sort of tension-filled history. There were different convictions about food, different religious convictions, and yet they find unity in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, Emperor Claudius, who reigned from AD 41 to AD 54, in the early AD 50s, issued a decree that all of the Jews had to leave Rome. If you were Jewish, you're gone. So what happens is you have this Christian church that is Jewish and Gentile. Suddenly the Jews have to leave. Now this edict of Jewish expulsion lasted about two to three years. After that, these Jewish Christians come back into Rome. They find their way into the church. But, but what happened? The church that they were leading is now Gentile-led. And so you have this, this church of Christians from diverse backgrounds, and there's this tension of, we, we started this church, we founded this church, and now the Gentiles led this church in our absence. And so Paul is writing to this church at Rome to encourage them in a season of difficulty, to encourage them in a season of persecution. And, and by the way, to be a Christian in first century Rome was really, really difficult. If you were a Christian in first century Rome, you were part of what the Roman upper crust elite said was a weird sort of cult. They accused the Christians of cannibalism. They accused the Christians of all sorts of outlandish things. So to be a Christian was to risk being socially marginalized and economically repressed. It could be hard to find work if somebody you knew you were one of those weird, crazy Christians. And so there's this question for the people in the church at Rome. How do we have any sort of impact? How do we even begin to make a difference? So here's the question I want us to wrestle with today. How can you and I, how can we practically live out our radical identity as Jesus followers in a transformative way. Sometimes we feel like we're just trying to survive, we're just trying to make it through the day. How do we begin to have a transformative impact that makes a significant difference? And, and this is what, in, in Romans chapter 12, we, we call the, uh, the, the, the fall series Practical Christianity because starting in Romans 12, Paul gets really practical about how the believers are to live and function as a community in order to have a transformative difference. So let's flesh out the context of where we've been over the last couple weeks. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says this. He says, therefore, in view of God's mercy... Offer all y'all's bodies, that yours plural, all y'all's bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, your true act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's good will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So let's just pause right there. What, what is Paul calling the believers to? When he says, offer all y'all's bodies as a living sacrifice, that's a reminder that he's speaking to a community. This was a public letter read out loud in the church. And that imagery of sacrifice goes back to the, the ancient Jewish worship in the temple. 
When you offered a sacrifice, the entire animal sacrifice was placed on the altar. You got none of it back. It was offered in its entirety, in its completion. So when Paul says, offer all y'all's bodies as a community, as a living sacrifice, what he's saying is, it's time to go all in on this Jesus thing. There was holding nothing back. You are committed. Throw your whole life into this. Go hard after Jesus. Pour everything you have. Surrender your plan. Surrender your purpose. Surrender your agenda to the words, ways, and wisdom of God. It's time, church, is what Paul is saying to the believers in Rome. And and the result of this for Paul, he says, is, is transformation. He says, don't conform to the pattern of this world. Don't be shaped by the convictions and values of culture. Rather, Paul says, be renewed, transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, what happens is when you surrender your life to Jesus and you begin to build your life on the words, ways, and wisdom of God, you begin to see things differently. You begin to think through things differently. And so what Paul is saying is live in a distinctly Christian way where you begin to think about things and process things from a Christ-centered gospel perspective, we should see the world different. Last week, Pastor Steve talked about the, the motivational gifts of the Spirit. He talked about things like prophecy and serving and teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, and mercy. And in that teaching, the context of that is that the believers are living in community together. And you have a spiritual gift. Hopefully you took that quiz that Pastor Steve walked us through. And the purpose of that was to help you identify how has the Spirit gifted you? But you have to recognize this. Your spiritual gift is not just a benefit to you. Your spiritual gift is to be a gift back to the community, back to the body of Christ. The gifts of the Spirit are meant to have impact in a relational communal setting. James Dunn, a prominent biblical scholar, says it this way. He says, spiritual gifts, he's commenting on Romans 12. He says, spiritual gifts are words and action which bring to concrete expression God's gracious outreach to humankind. They serve as a means of grace. If you have been blessed with the gift of prophecy or mercy or teaching or serving or leading, that gift is meant to be a means of God's grace to make an impact in the life of another. As we live and dwell in community, So that's the context of Romans 12. Now there's this question, how do we practically begin to live this out? What does it look like tangibly? And so that's where I would like you to join with me in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. There Paul says this. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now, did you see right away how Paul starts rapid firing these, these things that he's calling the believers to? Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Paul starts to walk through this very tangible, practical way that the believers are called to live out their radical identity as Jesus followers and to have a transformative impact in the culture around them. So let's walk through this together. And by the way, as we walk through this, I want you to notice Paul's strong language. I feel like Paul might be gifted as one who has prophecy. He, he says things that are hard. He opposed Peter to his face at one point. He uses language that is direct. He doesn't mince words. So notice right away in verse 9, Paul says, love must be sincere. 
Paul doesn't say love should be. He doesn't say I highly recommend that love is sincere. Paul says no, love must. It has to be sincere. Now the word that Paul uses for sincere is literally a Greek word that means without hypocrisy. Now in in Greek drama, in Greek theater, the hypocrite was the word that was used to refer to an actor who wore a mask. And the actor wore a mask because he inhabited a role that was not in reality who he actually was. Are you following me? So Paul says, as believers, you are not wearing a mask of love. This is not a role that you inhabit. Paul says, love must be sincere because this is who we are becoming in Christ Jesus. This is the very reality of what defines the believers is that we live out a sincere love for one another. You are not conformed to the pattern of this world. You have been transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does it look like? Paul says, how it looks practically is a love that must, has to be sincere. It is not just doing acts of love, it is being loving people. And by the way, your your motivational gift, that is to be uh, administered through a framework and through an attitude and a disposition of sincere love for those you are serving. Let, Let me define love further for us. 1 Corinthians 13. This is the Apostle Paul writing again. He says this. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. Think about that. Paul says, you can have this amazing gift of speaking in all these tongues. He says, but if you don't have love, Paul says, you're obnoxious. Uh, One year, uh, somebody got our kids a little drum kit. Had like a drum that went around. And there was a little set of cymbals. Can Can I tell you? I nearly lost my sanity after that Christmas, right? Like Lauren and I would be sitting on the couch trying to have a conversation. And there's a two year old in the corner going, with the symbols. And I was like, Jesus, please help me. Love should be patient. It should be kind. But I'm about to lose my mind on this child smashing the symbols, right? Because it just, it like gets in your brain and it just, it's annoying. Paul says, you can have the gift of, of tongues and speak in the language of angels, but if you don't have love, he says, you gain nothing. Verse two, if I have the gift of prophecy, motivational gift, and listen to that, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, serving and mercy, if I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. If you exercise your gift from any place other than love, Paul says it's worthless. It must come from a place of sincere love for the body. He continues, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. Now, let me ask you this question, where do you hear that passage read most often? Weddings, right? And, and I use it in weddings. I think it's a wonderful description of love. Can I tell you, though, that Paul is not officiating a wedding in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth that was torn apart by infighting and lack of unity. And Paul says, as a community of people, this is the way that love should look. Now, back to Romans 12, 9. Did you notice that Paul also says uh, that you should be devoted to one another in brotherly love? In other words, there should be a bond of familial love that unites and brings the body of Christ together. We are to act like a family. The church is not the building. The church is not the 501c3 government organized entity. The church is, can we pause for a second? Just look at the room. Look at the room. 
Look behind you. Look around. Because think about this, like, I know for worship, we're focused, you know, up here, we're listening to the words. For preaching, we're focused up here. But listen, church, the church is the people to the left and right of you. The church is us as a community gathering. And sometimes my concern is that we come and we partake and we leave and we miss the reality that this is church. When we are gathered and assembled as a community, Paul says, be devoted, not just tolerate one another, he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Observation. Family is messy, right? I mean, think about your own family. I, I love my family dearly, uh, but how many times have you ever had this experience where like you drive away from family Christmas or drive away from Thanksgiving with the extended family and you're like, I can't believe what uncle so-and-so said. That guy is crazy. And can you believe how she, and this person, and like, family's messy. And yet underneath all that, it's like, yeah, but they're family. I would die for them. I can't stand them, but I would die for them. I would be there. Here's the thing. Sometimes we come to church and we let people really disappoint us when they don't live up to our ideals and expectations. Listen, church, the church, this community is not a people who are perfect. We are broken and we are pursuing wholeness and holiness together. Can we co-journey well together? That's it. Let's do it well. And listen to what Paul, he says, love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy, it doesn't vote. Listen, how do you do with patience and kindness? And, and, and I don't mean, we, we are patient and kind with people we like. I don't mean, are you patient and kind with your family, with your friends? I mean, that person who ticks you off, that they, oh, I can't believe what they post on social media. Are you patient? Are you kind? And, and love is not easily angered. Can, can we just say, like, we live in a culture that is so easily angered. I, I can't believe that person says it, and we're ready to fight. And Paul says, no, no, no. In the Christian community, we demonstrate a kind of love that does not rise to anger right away. We are patient and we are kind. With it. Here's the thing though. Paul doesn't say we can't speak hard things. He doesn't say that we don't have hard conversations. He says this, love rejoices with truth. Catch this, love throws a party when the truth of Christ is rooted in someone's life. When someone gives their life to Jesus and they experience the truth and the freedom that bring, Jesus brings, we are going, yes, I am rejoicing that Jesus is setting you free, that he is making a way in your life. That's what love does. And we spend far too much time being annoyed with people that we should be serving from a place of sincere love. That's the call of Jesus, right? And so Paul continues, and he says this, love what is good, cling to what is good, hate what is evil, abhor what is evil, Paul says, and cling. And that word cling means to hold fast to. Have you ever had to hold on to something for dear life? Paul is like, white knuckle what is good, hold to it as if your life depended on it. And by the way, when Paul says hate what is evil, those things that are evil, those are the things that stand opposed to the word, ways, and redemptive movement of the kingdom of God. Let, let me pull up more teaching of Paul. Galatians 5. Let's read this together. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. In, in my mind, when Paul says, hate what is evil, I, I think that Paul might be referring to something like this, the acts of the sinful nature. Now, let, let's look at this together. We're good at identifying the biggies, right? We look at this and we go, yeah, witchcraft, whoo, biggie, biggie, stay away from witchcraft. Sexual immorality, ooh, biggie. Orgies, I'm not even sure the pastor can say that in church, but he just said it, it's in the Bible, that's, that's a biggie, like we should, yeah, that seems like that, that should go without saying. We shouldn't be involved in orgies of sexual immorality. It's all connected. But do you notice, Paul says things like discord. 
Oh, seriously, Paul, not a biggie. Discord is this, when I am out of harmony with another and I let it go unresolved. Factions, when we break up into little groups and we're fighting for our own little thing, we should wear masks, we should wear masks, we should be vaccinated, we shouldn't be vaccinated. Paul goes, don't break into factions. He goes, people who live like this, that is out of character with the kingdom of God. That is not where we live. That is not the kind of character we inhabit. It's okay to have different opinions and convictions on those things. But Paul says in the middle of that, love must be sincere. Hate these things. Paul says, hate discord. Are you jealous of a brother or sister? Paul says, hate that. Are you living in envy? What do you see what that person has? If only I had their opportunity. If only I had their resources. Paul goes, hate that. Don't let envy take root. How about selfish ambition? I don't know about you, but as I read this list, I'm ready to punch Paul in the face. Like, he gets so personal. Selfish ambition. It's so easy to live life with a me first mentality. I'm like, really, Paul, did you have to go there? Because it cuts to my heart. How about you? Paul goes, that's not who we are. That is not how we live. Cling to those things that are good. Right after that passage, Paul will say, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. When the spirit is present in our lives, that is the kind of people we are. See, the love that Paul calls us to, he identifies in Galatians as part of the fruit, part of what the Spirit brings in your life is a genuine disposition of love and a way of living that hates what is evil and clings to what is good. Can I ask us a hard question? What are you tolerating and rationalizing that Paul says you should be hating? Paul continues. He says this in uh, verse 12. Be joyful in... Uh, Sorry, verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Uh, Can I give you the Aaron International version of how we might say this succinctly? Don't be spiritually lazy. Ooh, Paul, man. I told you, he does not pull any punches with this passage. Paul, and and remember, he's writing to a community of believers who have suffered persecution. Actually, a few years after Romans is written and read in the church, uh, Emperor Nero would come to power and inflict some of the most vicious uh, torture on the Christian community in the city of Rome. And Paul is writing to this group of Christians who are risking being social outcasts, who are are risking their well-being by going all in on this Jesus thing. And what Paul tells them is, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, live out out of a sincere love. And Paul says, by the way, be spiritually engaged. Never be lacking in zeal. That phrase, keep your spiritual fervor, in the original language, has the sense to it of have a life that has been set aglow by the presence of the Spirit. That you are maintaining this close, intimate relationship with God in such a way that the Spirit gives you a holy glow and there is a passion and a zeal. It's offer all y'all's bodies as a living sacrifice. Now Paul says, don't be lacking in zeal. Go all in. Give it all over. And in part of it, Paul says, never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving God. I, I think sometimes we lack spiritual fervor because we sideline ourselves with our gifting and we don't bring it and offer it to the community around us. Paul says, keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And by the way, I think part of how we have transformative presence is that no matter what you do, do you come at it from this perspective of I am serving the kingdom of God, I am serving Jesus in this place, in this moment, in this occupation. If you were a stay-at-home parent, 
You're not just raising your kids. You are serving the Lord and you are submitting to the words, ways, and wisdom of God as you raise and steward your family well. Ask each day, Lord, how can I serve you well as I raise my family? Maybe at the, uh, in another way, you are a business leader. Maybe you own a company. Or do you step into that every day going, Lord, how can I serve you? How can I live in this occupation as if there is a spiritual thing that you want to do, as if there is a kingdom movement that you want to unfold? Maybe you work on the manufacturing line. Can you step into that and do it with excellence and say, Jesus, how can I serve a bigger kingdom perspective, being spiritually passionate, even as I do the ordinary things I do every day? And and then Paul says this in verse 12. He says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. And really here, Paul is encouraging the believers. They've had a hard go of it. And, and really what he's saying here is stay in it, hang in. And I love this idea, joyful in hope. This is a community that has been oppressed. This is a community in Rome that has been persecuted. This is a community that has been wrestling with tension and dissensions and envy. And Paul says, have a sincere love, be devoted to one another. Uh, and now he gets to this place and he says, be joyful in hope. In other words, Paul says, don't be overwhelmed. There's this joyful hope that even in the challenges that you are facing, God is unfolding a redemptive, hope-filled thing even in your midst. Let me read for you Romans 5.2. Paul says it this way there. Romans 5.2, Paul says, through Jesus, we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. Catch this. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, right? This is previously in the letter that we've been reading today. Paul says it's the Spirit who pours love into our life. And Paul says we we glory in our afflictions, he says, because perseverance produces character and character hope. And so Paul says be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, because that is precisely the place that God is forming and shaping you as a people of God who reflect the love of Jesus Christ poured into your life by the power and presence of the Spirit. That's why love is sincere. It's because it's not a role that we play. Love is not a mask that we wear. It is the evidence of the power and presence of the Spirit in our lives. And I'll be the first to admit, I'm really bad at being patient in affliction. As soon as I face affliction, I get super impatient. I'm like, God, why did you allow this? And what are you doing? And I'm super, super complaining. But when Paul says, be joyful in hope, he says, even in that place of affliction, you can be patient because you believe that God is unfolding something and he's forming and fashioning a transformative work in you. And so Paul says, y'all hold steady. Be patient here. And then he says this, don't just bide your time there. He says, be faithful in prayer. Be faithful in prayer. We are to be the people As Christians, we use this theological term, interceding. It means to pray on behalf of another. We are to be those interceding for our families, for our workplaces, for our communities, for our residence halls, for our professors. We are to be the ones. We we cannot expect a culture that doesn't know Jesus to be faithful in prayer. As the body of Christ, we are called to be those who are faithful in prayer. And so we patiently push in. We are enduring and living out this sincere love and we are interceding and praying diligently, faithfully for those around us. Why does this matter? 
What does it all come down to? We're called to have a transformative presence. And what this means is that you and I, we become countercultural living testimonies to the good news of the hope of Jesus Christ. There's like eight weeks of sermon series in Romans 12. I wanted to go there, but I thought you guys wanted to eat lunch at some point, so you're welcome. But Paul says this at the end of Romans 12, 21. Here, this is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And Paul is not saying work hard. He's saying, surrender your body to the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And through the resurrected work of Jesus Christ, the redeemed people of God will have a holy countercultural influence that becomes transformative in the culture in which we live. So Paul says, evil has not won the day. Overcome evil by living out the very things that we talked about, having a transformative presence. So I have some reflection questions for us. Uh, the band is going to come out in a moment, and we're going to take communion together as a community. And, and as we do, I, I want you to, to wrestle with some of these reflection questions based on Romans 12. Uh, do I have a sincere love for my brothers and sisters in Christ? Push a little bit deeper. Is there anyone that you're living in discord with that the Spirit right now is saying, you need to forgive them? You need to let that go? You need to offer grace? You need to be patient and kind? Am I holding tight to the way of Jesus? Am I justifying anything that I should be removing from my life? Am I spiritually engaged or am I spiritually lazy? Am I serving faithfully? Am I enduring well, joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer? As we take communion together, just think through those things. How is it with your soul? How are you doing in these areas? And so what's going to happen is in just a second, the band is going to play the song Graves into Gardens, which is a song that celebrates the redemptive possibilities of Jesus. And uh, what's going to happen is if you're seated on the floor here, you'll make your way forward row by row to grab communion elements. Um, If you need gluten-free wafers, there are some on the tables up here, so just feel free to to help yourself. Um, In the balcony, there were uh, elements on your way in. If you missed those, we'll have an usher up there. You can just raise your hand and they'll make sure that you get communion elements. Um, Pro tip, open them first. They're a little bit tricky sometimes, so open them first. And then if you'll wait until we've all received, we'll partake of communion together. So I'm going to pray. The band is going to play, and then you can make your way forward. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for, um, thank you for the privilege that we have this morning to be gathered as a community. I thank you for the beauty and the mystery and the mess that is your church. that we're not perfect people, that we're broken, but we're pursuing wholeness and holiness in you, Jesus. God, in the power of your spirit and by your grace and through your mercy, may we rise to the the call of Paul. May our love for one another be sincere. Help us to hate what is evil, to cling to what is good. May we be devoted to one another in brotherly love. May we be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. May we never be lacking in zeal, but Lord, may we keep our spiritual fervor serving you. May it be true of us by your grace. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.